Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded on Friday morning for this week's installment of Christogenia Saturdays on December 9th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we are going to discuss Christian Identity Liturgy in the book of odes i know some of my um some of my listeners have have at times uh, i won't say chastise me but at, at least mention to me the perception in in their minds and that's fine that we don't speak enough about prayer here at christogenia and of course prayer to me is thought your daily thoughts, your your frequent thoughts throughout the day, they should be your prayers, and your prayer should be your thoughts. And to me, if you are able to do that, and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to claim to be perfect at it, but to me, if you are able to do that, then you will ha- will have you will have achieved what. Paul of Tarsus encourages all Christians to achieve, and that's to captivate every thought in subjection to Christ. So to me, even though my own thoughts may not always be perfect, I'm only a fleshly man, thought is prayer, and prayer is thought, and through that understanding, I attempt to captivate every thought and and direct it towards Christ and and the kingdom of God and the building of his kingdom and and to put away carnal and and fleshly thought and that's enough of that the book of odes is known to us mostly from Alfred Ralph's publication of the Septuagint and it consists of a collection of songs or poems which were found placed at the end of the book of Psalms in the Codex Alexandrinus and only in the Codex Alexandrinus out of all of the major codices. Sir Francis Brenton did not include them in his Septuagint translation ostensibly because that work was based primarily upon the slightly older Codex Vaticanus, where the collection is not found. The odes are only pericopes. A pericope is a cutting out of, of, of something, right? So a portion of scripture is often called a pericope, from the Greek word to cut around. The odes are only pericopes which are extracted from other portions of scripture. So by themselves, they are not an actual biblical book. However, to us, they are very interesting because of the nature of the pericopes themselves. Now, the book of odes should not be confused with the odes of Solomon, which is an entirely different work. However, we believe that the Book of Odes is significant because it is clearly a collection of particular hymns and prayers 
chosen from throughout Scripture that were valued for liturgical purposes by the scribes who maintained this codex. A liturgy is the customary public worship performed by a group of Christians or a community of Christians. So we shall see that this book of odes is certainly a liturgy and once we understand its theme we can understand what that community of Christians believed. It's that simple. Although in our own translations of the Christogenian New Testament, we generally prefer the readings found in the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, where they may differ from the Alexandrinus. The Codex Alexandrinus is nevertheless of significant importance. It is esteemed to be from the 5th century AD, and it is said to have been brought to Constantinople from Alexandria in the 17th century AD. The library at Alexandria was destroyed in 642 AD, so somehow, if the Codex is as old as it is esteemed to be, it must have survived those flames. According to the British Library, where the Codex now resides, it was presented to King Charles I of England by Cyril Lucaris, who was the Patriarch of Constantinople in the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church, and the former Patriarch of Alexandria. Evidently, while Lucaris was a Patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, he was also a Calvinist, and therefore he was the center of much controversy. He was also friendly to the Church of England, which we know has adopted Calvinism in, in at least a great degree. To us, the Book of Odes reflects the medieval Christian thought of at least one significant sect of Christians from which it is preserved. In addition to the Book of Odes and all of the books which we know from the Septuagint, the Codex Alexandrinus also included the third and fourth books of the Maccabees, which are certainly Christian in nature, and the psalm which is often referred to as the 151st Psalm, which is alleged to be a song of David after his victory over Goliath. It's, of course, missing in other copies of Scripture. Additionally, the Codex contains copies of all of the books which we now know from the New Testament, and also includes 1 and 2 Clement, two epistles believed to have been written by Clement of Rome, who was, an, who was a Christian bishop of the very late 1st century. I think he was bishop of Rome. He's generally ex- esteemed to have been bishop of Rome until 99 AD, I believe. Now, there is an academic 
contention, which I must discuss here, even if it is not that well known. In my own podcasts and some of my writings, I label this Codex Alexandrinus, as well as the very similar Codex Ephraimi Siri, as reflecting the Alexandrian tradition. This is after William MacDonald, who diagrammed Westcott and Hort's textual groupings on page 30 of his Greek and Kyridian Grammar Handbook, where he listed the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in a textual grouping that was designated as neutral. And the codices Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and Gospel portions of the Codex Regius, which is from the 9th century, I believe, as Alexandrian. There were also labeled the Codices Beze, Claromontanus, Bornerianus, and the Old Testament portions of the Codex Regius as Western, as belonging to a Western textual grouping. And another group of codices, most of them pretty late from the 9th century or 10th even, the codices Basiliensis, or I'm sorry, Basilensis, Borelianus, Sidelianus I, Sidelianus II, Mutinensis, Coislinianus, and Angelicus as Syrian. They're in a Syrian textual grouping grouping after the textual groupings of Westcott and Hort. Now, of all of those, the Coislinianus belongs to the 6th century, and sometimes we um, use its readings in our notes to our translation. Many of these other manuscripts I ignored in my translations and in my notes simply because they are of a late date. To me, the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, that's of a late date, and I only considered manuscripts and papyri from the 6th century and earlier in my translations and in my notes. We are not necessarily agreeing that the Westcott and Hort system is ideal. We certainly aren't agreeing to that. But this was the system that many scholars of the 19th and early 20th centuries followed. And it is by this system that we label the codices Alexandrinus and Ephraim Siri as representing the quote-unquote Alexandrian tradition. What should not be in doubt, however, is that these manuscripts did come to us, meaning to the Christian West, from Alexandria. But now it seems that the Codex Alexandrinus is classified by more modern scholars under the label of Byzantine text type, as it is apparently the antecedent to the majority text, even if there are places where many manuscripts of the majority text do not agree with the Codex Alexandrinus. 
It is my opinion, however, that the majority text is usually closer to the Codex Alexandrinus rather than the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, where there are differences among the three. Sometimes, however, the majority text is actually closer to the Codices Beze and Claromontanus, especially in the Book of Acts and in a few times in Paul's epistles. This reflects another problem, that not all of the books in any ancient manuscript are, are of similar quality or follow closely any of the surviving ancient codices. Now, apologists for the majority text often attempt to connect the Codex Alexandrinus to early Christian Antioch, but there is no solid historical basis for making such a connection. The Codex Ephraimi Siri, which very often agrees with the Alexandrinus when other codices have differences, is also called the Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. It has no direct connection to Ephraim the Syrian, the early Christian writer, as is commonly supposed. Rather, it received its name because it is a palimpsest or a palimpsest, P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T. I think that might be palimpsest, meaning that it was washed of its text and rewritten. A scribe in the Middle Ages washed the biblical text from the pages of the Codex, and then, recycling them, he overwrote them with Greek translations of the treatises of Ephraim the Syrian. This evidently happened sometime before the fall of Constantinople, after which the manuscript made its way to Florence in Italy, and eventually to Paris, where it is now found in the National Library of France. This episode informs us that the particular scribe did not particularly esteem the value of the content of that codex. However, the lower text, quote-unquote lower text, that's what paleographers call it, meaning the text that was washed out and overwritten, was deciphered and then edited by paleographer and biblical scholar Constantin von Tischendorf from 1840 to 1845. Apparently, earlier attempts had been made which were not quite as good as von Tischendorf's. For these reasons, while we give variant readings from the Codex in our notes, we do not rely on it as a primary source in our translations. To us, it's only a secondary source, and a dubious one at that. We only value it because it follows the Codex Alexandrinus to a, to a great extent, not perfectly. There are also differences between those two manuscripts. But 
because also of its believed antiquity. It's believed to be dated to the 5th century AD. Now with this background, we should return to discuss the Odes. While the Codex Alexandrinus itself is not our most preferred of the ancient surviving manuscripts of Scripture, that does not mean that we cannot learn from it, and we can. The Book of Odes is, in our opinion, a collection of scriptures explicitly selected for regular liturgical use. Most of these odes have indeed been used for that very purpose in the Eastern Orthodox Church liturgy, as the Book of Odes also survives to this day in Eastern Orthodox Bibles. But to us, the substance of the Book of Odes is certainly what we would consider to be nationalist in our modern language. While some of the Odes deal with repentance and the glorification of God, many of them express nationalist aspects of Scripture and view the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament in Christ from that very aspect. So here we are going to read the 14 Odes. But while we had to read and even translate a few lines from the last of them, not finding a complete English translation, for most of the others, we only needed a precursory examination of the original language, because they are all pericopes from canonical scriptures. So for those, we will not make our own translations, but we will take the odes which are from the Old Testament, and we shall use Brenton Septuagint. And for those from the New Testament, we shall use our own Christogenia translation. From the Book of Odes, Chapter 1. This is actually the first Ode of Moses, and that's what it's labeled. And it's actually a um, pericope from Exodus chapter 15. It is Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Let us sing to the Lord, and I'm going to use the Septuagint language as it reads in Brenton's translation. Let us sing to the Lord, for he is very greatly glorified. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. He was to me a helper and protector for salvation. This is my God, and I will glorify him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord bringing wars to naught, the Lord is his name. We know that that originally meant or said Yahweh is his name. And he has cast the chariots of Pharaoh and his host into the sea. The chosen mountain cap mounted captains, they were swallowed up in the Red Sea. He covered them with the sea. They sank to the depth like a stone. Thy right hand, O God, 
has been glorified in strength. Thy right hand, O God, has broken the enemies. And in the abundance of thy glory, thou hast broken the adversaries to pieces. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, it devoured them as stubble. And by the breath of thine anger, the water parted asunder. The waters were congealed as a wall. The waves were congealed in the midst of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, and I will overtake. I will divide the spoils. I will satisfy my soul. I will destroy with my sword. My hand shall have dominion. Thou sentest forth thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty water. Who is like to thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like to thee? Glorified in holiness, marvelous in glories, doing wonders. Thou stretchest forth thy right hand. The earth swallowed them up. Thou hast guided in thy righteousness. This thy people, whom thou hast redeemed. By thy strength thou hast called them into thy holy resting place. The nations heard and were angry. Pangs have seized on the dwellers among the Philistines. Then the princes of Edom and the chiefs of the Moabites hasted. Trembling took hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Let trembling and fear fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. Let them become a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till thy people pass over, whom thou hast purchased. Bring them in and plant them in the mountain of their inheritance. In thy prepared habitation, which thou, O Lord, hast prepared. And the sanctuary where thy hands have made ready. The Lord reigns for ever and ever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with the chariots and horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought them the water of the sea. But the children of Israel walked through dry land in the midst of the sea. This first ode glorifies God. But it also celebrates the national deliverance of the children of Israel and God's favor for them at the expense of the other nations. Furthermore, it celebrates Israel's inheritance and relationship with God. Something a dispensationalist Christian should not want to celebrate since now the quote-unquote church is Israel, which of course is a lie. From Odes 2. This is called in the book of Odes the second Ode of Moses. It's actually a pericope from Deuteronomy chapter 32, comprising of practically the entire chapter, verses 1 through 43. Attend, O heaven, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words out of my mouth. Let my speech be looked for as the rain, and my words come down as dew, 
as the shower upon the herbage and as snow upon the grass. For I have called on the name of the Lord. Assign ye greatness to our God. As for God, his works are true, and all his ways are judgment. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Just and holy is the Lord. They have sinned, not pleasing him. Spotted children, a forward and perverse generation. Do ye thus recompense the Lord? Is the people thus foolish and unwise? Did not he himself, thy father, purchase thee, and make thee and form thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years for past ages. Ask thy father, and he shall relate to thee, thine elders, and they shall tell thee. When the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God, and other manuscripts as well as the Masoretic text has according to the number of the children of Israel in that place. And his people Jacob became the portion of the Lord. Israel was the line of his inheritance. He maintained him in the wilderness, in burning thirst and a dry land. He led him about and instructed him, and kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle would watch over his brood, and yearns over his young, receives them, having spread his wings, and takes them up upon his back. The Lord alone led them, and there was, there was no strange God with them. He brought them up on the strength of the land. He fed them with the fruits of the fields. They sucked honey out of the rock and oil out of the solid rock. Butter of cows and milk of sheep, with the fat of lambs and rams, of calves and kids, with fat of kidneys of wheat, and he drank wine, the blood of the grape. So Jacob ate and was filled, and the beloved one kicked. He grew fat. He became thick and broad. Then he forsook the God that made him and departed from God his Savior. They provoked me to anger with strange gods. With their abominations they bitterly angered me. They sacrificed to devils and not to God, to gods whom they knew not. New and fresh gods came in whom their fathers knew not. Thou hast forsaken God that begot thee, and forgot God who feeds thee. And the Lord saw, and was jealous, and was provoked by the anger of his sons and daughters, and said, I will turn my face away from them, and show them what shall happen to them in the last days. For it is a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have exasperated me with their idols. And I will provoke them to jealousy with them that are no nation. And that describes the Jews. 
these Edomite, Canaanite Jews. I will anger them with the nation void of understanding. For a fire has been kindled out of my wrath. It shall burn to hell below. It shall devour the land, and the fruits of it shall set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will gather evils upon them, meaning his people Israel, because they're going to be chastised for their sins, and will fight with my weapons against them. They shall be consumed with hunger and the devouring of birds, and there shall be irremediable destruction. I will send forth against them the teeth of wild beasts, or negroes, with the rage of serpents creeping on the ground. Without the sword shall bereave them of children. The terror shall issue out of the secret chambers. The young man shall perish with the virgin, the suckling with him who has grown old. I said I will scatter them, and I will cause their memorial to cease from among men. Were it not for the wrath of the enemy, lest they should live long, lest their enemies should combine against them, lest they should say, Our own high arm, and not Yahweh has done all these things. It is a nation that has lost counsel, neither is there understanding in them. They had not sense to understand. Let them reserve these things against the time to come. The time where in Luke by the arm of Yahweh the same children of Israel to fulfill the promises made to the fathers would be redeemed from their enemies so in reference to this we must see the odes which cite Luke chapter 1 which we will see later in this presentation and there are several of them Luke chapters 1 and 2 there are three of them if this is a liturgy these passages which were selected from the Old Testament and those passages which were selected from the New Testament must be seen as presenting a consistent interpretation of Scripture or why would these passages and those passages be selected at all to continue quoting the second of the odes and Deuteronomy 32 verse 30 how should one pursue a thousand or two route tens of thousands if God had not sold them and the Lord delivered them up for if their gods are not as our God but our enemies are void of understanding for their vine is the vine of Sodom and their vine branch of Gomorrah their grape is a grape of gall their cluster is one of bitterness their wine is the rage of serpents and the incurable rage of asps lo are not these things stored up by me and sealed among my treasures in the day of vengeance I will recompense whensoever their foot shall be tripped up for the day of their destruction is near to them and the judgments at close hand are upon you for the Lord shall judge his people 
and shall be comforted over his servants. For he saw that they were utterly weakened and failed in the hostile invasion and were become feeble. And the Lord said, Where are their gods on whom they trusted? The fat of whose sacrifices you ate, and ye drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them arise and help you and be your protectors. Behold, I that am he, and there is no God beside me. I will kill, and I will make to live. I will smite, and I will heal, and there is none who shall deliver out of my hands. For I will lift up my hand to heaven, and swear by my right hand, and I will say, I live forever. For I will sharpen my sword like lightning, and my hand shall take hold of judgment, and I will render judgment to my enemies, and recompense with them that hate me. I will make my weapons drunk with blood, and my sword shall be devour flesh. It shall glut itself with the blood of the wounded, and from the captivity of the heads of their enemies that rule over them. Their enemies that rule over them. Rejoice, ye heavens, with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice, ye nations, with his people, and let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him. For he will avenge the blood of his sons, and he will render vengeance and recompense to his enemies, and will reward them that hate him. And the Lord shall purge the land of his people. The last line should not be interpreted that God would, God would purge his people from off the land, but rather he would purge the land which belongs to his people. This song of Moses first celebrates the relationship which Yahweh had with the children of Israel. It celebrates their election and commences to lament the punishment they would suffer for their sin. It describes how their enemies would come to prevail over them in the time of their punishment and how they would be scattered afar. But ultimately, God will avenge his people, destroy their enemies that had come to rule over them in the time of their punishment, and upon his revenge, the people are told to rejoice, where he promises to cleanse all of their enemies from their land. So this is a song of national election, sin, and redemption for the children of Israel. Later, we shall see the same message in the passages which our liturgist chose from Luke chapters 1 and 2. That cannot be a coincidence. Ode 3 is the prayer of Anna, the mother of Samuel. It's actually a pericope taken from 1 Samuel chapter 2, from verses 1 through 10. My heart is established in the Lord. 
My horn is exalted in my God. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. I have rejoiced in thy salvation. For there is none holy as the Lord, and there is none righteous as our God. There is none holy besides thee. Boast not, and utter not high things. Let not high-sounding words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and God prepares his own designs. The bow of the mighty has waxed feeble, and the weak have girded themselves with strength. They that were full of bread are brought low, and the hungry have forsaken a land. For the barren has borne seven, and she that abounded in children has waxed feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He lifts up the poor from the earth and raises the needy from the dunghill to seat him with the princes of the people and causing them to inherit the throne of glory, granting his petition to him that prays. And he blesses the years of the righteous. For by strength cannot man prevail. The Lord will weaken his adversary. The Lord is holy. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast in his strength, and let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let him that boasts boast in this, to understand and know the Lord, and to execute judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. Paul of Tarsus borrowed this language later on for his epistles to the Corinthians. The Lord has gone up to the heavens and has thundered. He will judge the extremities of the earth and he gives strength to our kings and will exalt the horn of his Christ, as it says in Brenton's Septuagint. And while this is a song glorifying Yahweh, which Hannah sang for her own personal joy, she also seems to offer herself as a type for the people, for the nation. Hannah's words were inspired. She was going to be redeemed out of her own barren state and bear a son. But the son, Samuel, would in turn deliver Israel from their enemies, as well as from the injustices of the sons of Eli, who were corruptly judging Israel at that time. The word Christ in the final verse should have been translated as anointed in reference to the people of Israel collectively. The same mistake is more frequently made in the New Testament. Hannah's song is one of salvation for the nation and not only for herself. So, in the prayer of Hannah, we see the same general message as we had in the second ode of Moses, which preceded it. The people of Israel would come to be ruled over by oppressors on account of their sin. They would be made low. But the humble among them, in this case, represented by Hannah herself, Hannah herself would repent and turn to Yahweh and through them the nation would have salvation. Odes 4 
is a prayer of Habakkuk. It's actually a pericope cut from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 through 19. Of course, back then they didn't have the chapter and verse numbers. They only read the scroll of Habakkuk and cut this portion out and copied it into their book of odes as the fourth paragraph or fourth section of that book. O Lord, I have heard thy report and was afraid. I considered thy works and was amazed. Thou shalt be known between the two living creatures, a reference to the cherubim. Thou shalt be acknowledged when the years draw nigh. Thou shalt be manifested when the time is come. When my soul is troubled, thou wilt in wrath remember mercy. God shall come from Taman, and the Holy One from the dark shady Mount Faran, or Paran the T-H and T and the S-H and the S and the P-H and the P were all interchangeable from Hebrew to Greek. So Taman might be Phaemon as it is here or Paran might be Pharan as it is here. His excellence covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness shall be his light. There were horns in his hands, and he caused a mighty love of his strength. Before his face shall go a report, and it shall go forth into the plains. The earth stood at his feet and trembled. He beheld, and the nations melted away. The mountains were violently burst through. The everlasting hills melted at his everlasting going forth. Because of troubles, I looked upon the tents of the Ethiopians, actually that should say the Cushites, the true white descendants of Cush, The tabernacles also of the land of Midian shall be dismayed. Wast thou angry, O Lord, with the rivers, meaning the races of people? Or was thy wrath against the rivers, or thine anger against the sea, meaning the great mass of the other races, the other nations and peoples. For thou wilt mount on thine horses, and thy chariots are salvation. Surely thou did bend thy bow at scepters. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Surely thou didst bend thy bow at scepters saith the Lord. The land of rivers shall be torn asunder. The nations shall see and be in pain. As as thou does divide the moving waters, the deep uttered her voice and raised her form on high. The sun was exalted and the moon stood still in her course. 
Thy dark shall go forth at the light, at the brightness of the gleaning of thine arms. Thou wilt bring low the land with threatening, and in wrath wilt thou break down the nations. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, to save thine anointed. Thou shalt bring death on the heads of transgressors. Thou hast brought bands upon their neck. Thou did cut asunder the heads of princes with amazement. They shall tremble in it. They shall burst their bridles. They shall be as a poor man devouring in secret. And thou dost cause thine horses to enter the sea, disturbing much water. That should be as a poor man eating in shame in secret. I watched, and my belly trembled at the sound of the prayer of my lips. And trembling entered into my bones, and my frame was troubled within me. I will rest in a day of affliction from going up to the people of my sojourning. For though the fig tree shall bear no fruit, and there shall be no produce on the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall produce no fruit, the sheep have failed from the pasture, and there are no oxen at the cribs, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will joy in God my Savior. The Lord God is my strength, and he will perfectly strengthen my feet. He mounts me upon high places, that I may conquer by his song. Just like the song of Moses, this song of Habakkuk laments the oppression of the people of Yahweh, the genetic children of Israel, and celebrates the wrath of God, which is to come upon all of the other nations, so that he may deliver his people Israel. We also shall see, we also see the same term, thine anointed, referring to the people of Israel, and here Brenton translated it correctly. Throughout the New Testament, it usually refers to the Anointed One, to Yahshua Christ. But it also frequently describes His people, collectively, the same people of Israel, the lost sheep for whom He had come. And that meaning of the term is lost on the New Testament translators. But we see it here in the prayer of Habakkuk in Brenton's translation. And the context is clear that it refers collectively to the people. We will see this theme develop further. But we must remember that while these are songs or odes, they are also prophecies and promises which are yet in the future. And there is no evidence that the compiler of the odes thought that they were written in reference to the Jews. There is also no evidence that the compiler of the odes imagined himself to be some spiritual Israel, or that Israel was no longer a genetic entity, but some church organization instead. Those ideas are not found in Scripture, and the liturgy outlined here in these odes actually refutes those ideas. Odes 5 is a prayer of Isaiah. It's actually a pericope 
from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 9 through 20. And I quoted part of this chapter recently in in a presentation of Paul's second epistle to Timothy. And I found in my um, in my electronic word searches made against certain Greek terms, I found that um, these odes contained an identical line with Isaiah chapter 26, and that raised my curiosity. So I went and I read the entire ode, and I didn't have a an English translation. I didn't have any, not even in my copy of Bible Works, which has um, an extraordinary amount of English and Greek and Hebrew texts and, and other languages as well, I did not have an English translation of the Odes handy to me, and, and it was difficult even to find one online. Eventually I did find one, but I'm not very happy with it. Anyway, I had to pay um, $2.56 to purchase an e-book that can only be read online in Google Books and can't even be copy and pasted from in order to read that one English translation of the Odes that I did find. So I'm not very happy with that. But seeing the identical Greek lines in Isaiah and the Odes raised my um, my interest in the Odes, and I was curious. So I went and I started reading the Odes, and I read up on the Odes, and I realized what they were, and that led me to present this program. So that's how we got here where we are today. This is actually a pericope from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 9 through 20. My spirit seeks thee early, very early in the morning, O God. For thy commandments are a light on the earth. Learn righteousness that ye dwell upon the earth. For the ungodly one is put down. No one who will not learn righteousness on the earth shall be able to do the truth. Let the ungodly be taken away, that he see not the glory of the Lord. O Lord, thine arm is exalted, yet they knew it not. But when they know, they shall be ashamed. Jealousy shall seize upon an untaught nation, and now fire shall devour the adversaries. O Lord, our God, give us peace, for thou hast rendered to us all things. O Lord, our God, take possession of us. O Lord, we know not any other beside thee. We name thy name. But the dead shall not see life. Neither shall physicians by any means raise them up. Therefore, thou hast brought wrath upon them and slain them. So they were dead while they were living. And has taken away every male of them. They were twice dead, as it says in the Apostle Jude. He uses the term to describe people who were not of the children of Israel. Ring more evils upon them, O Lord. I'm sorry, that should probably say bring. 
bring more evils on the glorious ones of the earth, those in the high places, the princes of this world. And Christ said that the princes of this world have nothing to do with him. Lord, in affliction I remembered thee. Thy chastening was to us with small affliction. And as a woman in travail draws nigh to be delivered and cries out in her pain, so have we been to thy beloved. We have conceived, O Lord, because of thy fear, and have been in pain, and have been brought forth the breath of thy salvation, which we have wrought upon the earth. We shall not fall, but all that dwell upon the land shall fall. The dead shall rise. So these are not the dead that were living that would be slain. The dead shall rise, and they that are in the tomb shall be raised, and they that are in the earth shall rejoice, for the dew from thee is healing to them. But the land of the ungodly shall perish. Go, my people, enter into thy closets, shut thy door, hide thyself for a little season, until the anger of the Lord had passed away. And here we see the liturgy teach the necessity of keeping the law in order to have a relationship with God. More significantly, the chastening and affliction of which Isaiah sings is a chastening and affliction upon the children of Israel for their sins. And the prayer ends with the promise to, quote-unquote, my people, those children of Israel who are humble and obedient to their God, to find refuge until he destroys all of his enemies, who are described as dead even while they live. But the dead of his people shall rise and fire shall devour his adversaries. So this is a song of national chastisement and national punishment for sin with a promise for national redemption. By national I mean racial. The true sense of the word national. Because a true nation is a homogenous racial unit. Odes, chapter 6, I'll call them chapters even though many of them are simply paragraphs or even just a couple of sentences, while some of them are very lengthy. This is the prayer of Jonah. It is taken from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. (laughs) Excuse me. I cried in affliction to the Lord my God, and he hearkened to me. Even my cry out of the belly of hell, thou heardest my voice. Thou did cast me into the depths of the heart of the sea, and the floods compassed me. All thy billows and thy waves had passed upon me, and I said, I am cast out of thy presence. Shall I indeed look again toward thy holy temple? Water was poured. And that statement is true of all of the children of Israel later on. 
Water was poured around me to the soul. The lowest deep compassed me. My head went down to the clefts of the mountains. I went down into the earth, whose bars are the everlasting barriers. Yet, O Lord my God, let my ruined life be restored. When my soul was failing me, I remembered the Lord, and may my prayer come to thee in thy holy temple. Jonah is writing this as best I can determine in the middle of the 9th century BC perhaps a hundred years before the Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel at the time Assyria's empire was expanding to the south and threatening lands held by the children of Israel the Assyrians had already taken parts of Syria which had formerly belonged to the Israelites. So Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but he was forced to by Yahweh. One way or another he went. When my soul was failing me, I remembered the Lord, and may my prayer come to thee into thy holy temple. They that observe vanities and lies have forsaken their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of praise and thanksgiving. All that I have vowed, I will pay to thee, the Lord of my salvation. Now, Jonah was a type for Christ. And the belly of the whale represented the certainty of death. But while facing death, at his lowest point, Jonah turned his thoughts to his God, and he was delivered. So in this instance, Jonah is representative of the people of Israel and the magnificence of the saving power of Yahweh. Next we have two odes from apocryphal literature relating to the book of Daniel. The prayer of Azariah is supposed to belong to the Azariah of Daniel's companions. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are first mentioned in Daniel chapter 1 verse 6. Then in Daniel chapter 1 verse 7 we read that these three were renamed by Nebuchadnezzar as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Following this is the song of the three young men, which are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So this is the seventh ode, the prayer of Azariah. It is found in the apocryphal book of Azariah from verses 2 through 21. Blessed art thou, O Lord God of our fathers. Thy name is worthy to be praised and glorified forevermore. For thou art righteous in all the things which thou hast done to us. True are all thy works. Thy ways are right, and all thy judgments truth. Now, Daniel and his friends were in captivity in Babylon. So, they were there not for their own sins, but on account of the sins of the nation. Yet, they declare, for thou art righteous in all the things that thou hast done unto us.
So even though they were being punished for the sins of the nation, they nevertheless honored God and glorified God for his judgments, even though those judgments went against their own personal considerations, were damaging to their own personal interests, which shouldn't matter to us. In all the things that thou hast brought upon us, and upon the holy city of our fathers, even Jerusalem, thou hast executed true judgment. For according to truth and judgment did thou bring all these things upon us because of our sins, meaning their collective sins, not necessarily necessarily their individual sins. For we have sinned and committed iniquity, departing from thee. In all things we have trespassed, and not obeyed thy commandments, nor kept them, neither done as thou hast commanded us, that it might go well with us. Wherefore, all that thou hast brought upon us, and everything that thou hast done unto us, thou hast done in true judgment. And we being identity Christians, knowing our racial identity with the Israelites of the Old Testament, and knowing the importance of keeping the law, should have this same attitude today as the rest of our nations are now being judged in this very same manner, for these very same reasons. So from verse 8, And thou did deliver us into the hands of lawless enemies, most hateful forsakers of God, and to an unjust king, and to the most wicked in all the world. And now we cannot open our mouths, We are become a shame and a reproach to thy servants and to them that worship thee. Yet deliver us not up wholly for thy name's sake, neither disannul thou covenant, and cause not thy mercy to depart from us. For thy beloved Abraham's sake, the children of Israel are saved, not on account of themselves, but in spite of themselves, for the sake of of the promises to the fathers, as we shall see the same liturgist recognize, where he cites certain passages from Luke. He only cited a couple of passages from the New Testament, but all three of the New Testament passages which he cited are from Luke and relate to the promises to the fathers and national salvation. That is not a coincidence. That is a purposeful exposition of doctrine. From verse 9. So I'll repeat myself to a point. And now we cannot open our mouths. We are become a shame and a reproach to thy servants and to them that worship thee. Yet deliver us not up wholly for thy name's sake, neither disannul thou thy covenant, 
and cause not thy mercy to depart from us. For thy beloved Abraham's sake, for thy servant Isaac's sake, and for thy holy Israel's sake, to whom thou hast spoken and promised, that thou wouldest multiply their seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that lieth upon the seashore. For we, O Lord, are become less than any nation, and be kept under this day in all the world because of our sins. Neither is there at this time prince or prophet or leader, or burnt offering or sacrifice or oblation, or incense or place to sacrifice before thee and to find mercy. Nevertheless, with a contrite heart and a humble spirit, let us be accepted. Like as in the burnt offerings of rams and bullocks, and like as in ten thousands of fat lambs, so let our sacrifice be in thy sight this day, and grant that we may wholly go after thee, for they shall not be confounded that put their trust in thee. And now we follow thee with all our heart, we fear thee, and we seek thy face. Put us not to shame, but deal with us after thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercies. Deliver us according to thy marvelous works, and give glory to thy name, O Lord. And let them that do thy servants hurt be ashamed, and let them be confronted in all their power and might, and let their strength be broken. And let them know that thou art God, the only God, and glorious over the whole world. Here we see the same pattern of election, sin in the transgression against the law, the resulting national punishment, and an appeal to the promises based on the covenants of Yahweh God with the race of Israel. Israel was made lower than all the other nations. And Azariah prays for national redemption, saying of those other nations, Let them be confounded in all their power and might, and let their strength be broken. This liturgy is displaying a consistent message of national redemption and salvation, and the fact that the substance of the promises of God is to the literal seed of Israel at every turn. This is the Song of the Three Young Men. It's found in the prayer of Azariah from verses 28 through 65, as we said in the Apocrypha, and as we said, these three young men are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. (coughs) The prayer of Azariah The prayer of Azariah is esteemed by those who accept its canonicity to belong to what we know as the later portions or the end of Daniel chapter 3. The prayer may very well be canonical. The prayer definitely seems to be inspired. The entire prayer of Azariah, which would include both of these pericopes of the odes and I don't know why it was rejected if it was rejected by the Masoretes 
and I don't believe that it was necessarily the work of a later hand either. So whether or not it really belongs in Daniel is um, is up to one's personal preference to decide that. I would include them in if I ever did a translation of Daniel from the Greek of the Septuagint. I would include Susanna as a preface to Daniel, and I would include the prayer of Azariah in at the end of Daniel chapter 3. I would not include Bell and the Dragon, which I do not believe is canonical or even original. That's my opinion. I don't know if I could prove that opinion, but reading Bell and the Dragon, that's the impression I receive. And that could also be argued. This is the Ode 8, the song of the three young men. I'm sorry, my voice is straining. Blessed art thou, O Lord God of our fathers, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. And blessed is thy glorious and holy name, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. Blessed art thou in the temple of thine holy glory, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. Now, some people may wonder at that, this being the book of Daniel. However, it's generally esteemed, and I accept the idea that the early portions of the book of the prophet Daniel were written very early in his life, and that Daniel and his companions were among the initial thousand princes of Jerusalem who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in its last days. And this is recorded in the book of Chronicles, and perhaps, I don't think it's recorded in Kings, I could be wrong. I know it's recorded in Chronicles, in, in the reigns of one of the last kings of Judah, and Daniel and his companions are esteemed to have been among those thousand princes of Judah who were given over to Nebuchadnezzar and taken back to Babylon as a ransom. So, Jerusalem hasn't actually fallen yet at this period. And Daniel himself and these three young men, as this is called the Song of the Three Young Men, Daniel himself and his companions are indeed very young when they're taken into captivity. But Jerusalem is left behind intact with most of its people. So the references to the temple here are not anachronisms, not by any means. Blessed art thou that beholdest the deaths and sittest upon the cherubims, and to be praised and exalted above all forever. And actually the temple was destroyed about twenty years after this. Blessed art thou on a glorious throne of thy kingdom, and to be praised and glorified above all forever. Blessed art thou in the firmament of heaven, and above all to be praised and glorified forever. O oh, all ye works of the Lord, bless ye the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye heavens, bless ye the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye angels of the Lord, bless ye the Lord, and praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye waters that be above the heaven, the clouds, bless ye the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. O 
O ye powers of the Lord, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye sun and moon, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye stars of heaven, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O every shower and dew, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O all ye winds, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye fire and heat, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye winter and summer, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye dews and storms of snow, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. And the majesty of these things praises Yahweh. The existence and majesty of these things praises Yahweh our God because by the things created and the glory of them we should know that he exists as Paul asserts in Romans chapter 1. O ye nights and days, bless ye the Lord. Bless and exalt him above all forever. O ye light and darkness, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye ice and cold, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. Just stay out of Florida. O ye frost and snow, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye lightnings and clouds, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O let the earth bless the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye mountains and little hills, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O all ye things that grow on the earth, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye mountains, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye seas and rivers, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye whales and all that move in the waters, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye fowls of the air, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O all ye beasts and cattle, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye children of men, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O Israel, Bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye priests of the Lord, who are still in the temple at this time, praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye servants of the Lord, bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye spirits and souls of the righteous, notice the qualification. Bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O ye holy and humble men of heart. Bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. O Ananias, Azarias, and Misael. Bless ye the Lord. Praise and exalt him above all forever. The occasion of these prayers were the trials in the oven which are 
described in Daniel chapter 3 when these young men along with Daniel would not worship the idols of Babylon. The song of the three young men was a general praise of Yahweh God which nevertheless accentuated the national relationship with Israel has with God in its closing verses. Now we shall witness that same thing in the Odes in the passages of the Odes which are which are taken from the New Testament. And this is um there are fourteen odes by some counts and by other counts there are fifteen odes. We will go along with the count of fourteen odes which is found in Ralph's um reproduction of the Codex Alexandrinus. This is the first part of Ode nine. We will designate it Odes 9a. This is, according to the Codex Alexandrinus, the prayer of Mary the Theotokos. This is actually a pericope taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Yahweh has magnified my life, and I'm using the term Yahweh here because this is the Christogenian New Testament and we will not maintain the error of transcribing or, or or attempting to translate the tetragrammaton which is the name Yahweh in Hebrew into a title in Greek or in English Yahweh has magnified my life and my spirit rejoices in Yahweh my savior because he has looked upon the lowest state of his servant For behold, from this time, all the generations shall pronounce me happy or blessed, if you want to follow the usual translations. Because the powerful one has done greatly by me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for generations and generations for those who fear him. For he has made victory by his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And we see that same language used of Israel's enemies in the passages of the Old Testament, which we have cited here, which the Odes have included in their liturgy here, is the way I should phrase that. He has deposed potentates from thrones, thrones, and he has elevated the lowly the same hope that we see expressed in the previous passages, such as the prayer of Anna. Those who hunger, he is filled with good things. And those who are rich, he is sent away empty. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring for the age, which may have been translated to his seed forever. First, many believe that the title Mary the Theotokos was by itself an elevation of Mary to the position in which the later Roman Catholics had lifted her, which is basically an idolization 
that is idolatry, worshipping the creation instead of the creator. However, Theotokos only means bearer of God. That's what the word means. And it distinguishes this Mary from the several other women of the New Testament who bore that same name. The name Mariam itself means rebellion of the people, which is exemplary of the relationship which Yahweh has with Israel and of the need for their salvation in the first place. Here the connections are solidified. The liturgical purpose of the Book of Odes is to demonstrate the relationship of Old Covenant Israel to New Covenant Israel, that they are one and the same people. Of all the passages a liturgist may select from the Old Testament, most of those selected here had to do with Israel's election, Israel's sin, and Israel's having been punished and ruled over by their enemies on account of their sin, and the ultimate purpose of Israel's deliverance. So now, the liturgist selects his first New Testament passage, and we read the same promise of deliverance for the people of Israel the seed of Abraham from the hands of their enemies to keep all the promises made to Abraham and his offspring. And that is given as the very reason for the incarnation of Christ. Perhaps the perhaps perhaps I'm stretching it now perhaps this aspect of the passage may be glossed over if it stands alone. But if the liturgist does it twice, then it cannot be overlooked. And if he does it three times, then with all certainty, it must be the main purpose of the liturgy. So this is Odes 9. The prayer of Zechariah. Yahweh, blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Odes 9b, the prayer of Zechariah. This is actually the prayer of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, which is found in Luke. <coughs> in Luke chapter 1, from verses 68 to 79. That's Odes 9b. Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised for us a horn of salvation in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old preservation from our enemies. The same theme we saw in these passages selected from the Old Testament. 
preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about the mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father which is given to us being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest, in reference to John the Baptist. For you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path, in reference to Yahshua Christ. For which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their sins through the affectionate mercies of our God by whom dawn visits us from the heights to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death the children of Israel described in the prophet Isaiah to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the second passage from the New Testament that the liturgist chose. And he chose it purposely. So here we have it. The Book of Odes is not a history, but it is nevertheless a liturgy which teaches Christian identity. If the people celebrating this liturgy are not the offspring of Abraham, who were the subjects of these promises, then the liturgy makes no sense whatsoever. It would be a religion practiced by a people who had no connection to it whatsoever. A little further on in these odes, the liturgist will choose another passage, a third passage from Luke. which further stresses the message of national salvation for the children of Israel. So we see that this is indeed the purpose of the liturgy, to teach national salvation for Israel from the oppression of the other nations and races. Odes 10. Odes 10 is the Song of Isaiah. It's a pericope from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It's the second pericope from Isaiah chosen for this liturgy. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved concerning my vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a high hill in a fertile place, and I made a hedge around it and dug a trench and planted a choice vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and dug a place for the wine vat in it. And I waited for it to bring forth grapes, and it brought forth thorns. And of course, Christ used this same thing, that this same example in the Gospel. And now, ye dwellers in Jerusalem, and every man of Judah, two separate things evidently or possibly judge between me and my vineyard what shall I do any more to my vineyard that I have not done to it 
Whereas I expected it to bring forth grapes, but it has brought forth thorns. And of course, this corresponds to the servant of the master in the parable of the vineyard. And the fig tree that was used as an example in that parable. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be for a spoil, just as Christ said that the fig tree would be rooted up. And I will pull down its walls, and it shall be left to be trodden down. And I will forsake my vineyard, and it shall not be pruned nor dug. And thorns shall come upon it, as on barren land. And I will command the clouds to rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his beloved plant. And I expected it to bring forth judgment, and it brought forth iniquity, and not righteousness, but a cry. Woe to them to join house to house and add field to field. Sounds like the bankers. That they may take away something of their neighbors. Will ye dwell alone upon the land? For these things have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. One may read men of Judah here, and think that perhaps the liturgist does intend to describe the Jews. Christ warned against those who called themselves Judeans, but were not, and were truly the synagogue of Satan. A Judean was certainly not always a man of Judah. And while every true man of Judah was an Israelite, Judea was the house of Judah, but it was not the house of Israel. I should say, a Judean was not always a man of Judah in the time of Christ. And the house of Israel cannot be confused for the house of Judah. The house of Israel was being scattered abroad as Isaiah wrote this song. The liturgist had already included descriptions from scripture that described the children of Israel as being scattered in the previous odes. And that is also what this song prophecies, that the vineyard, its head shall be taken away, and it shall be for a spoil, and its wall shall be pulled down, and it shall be left to be trodden down. Now we shall cite Odes chapter 11, which is the prayer of Hezekiah found in Isaiah chapter 38, verses 10 through 20. I said in the end of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I shall part with the remainder of my years. I said, I shall no more see at all the salvation of God in the land of the living. I shall no more see at all the salvation of Israel on earth. I shall no more at all see man. My life has failed from among my kindred. I have parted with the remainder of my life. It has gone forth and departed from me. As one that having a pitched tent takes it down again. My breath was with me as a weaver's web. When she that weaves draws nigh to cut off the thread. In that day I was given up as a lion until the morning. 
so has he broken all my bones. For I was so given up from day even to night. As a swallow, so will I cry. And as a dove, so do I mourn. For mine eyes have failed with looking to the height of heaven to the Lord, who has delivered me and removed the sorrow of my soul. Yea, O Lord, for it was told thee concerning this, and thou hast revived my breath, and I am comforted and live. <coughs> this is when Hezekiah was sick unto death, and then he was healed when he repented and turned to God, and given fifteen more years, I think, that he may live. For thou hast chosen my soul that it should not perish, and thou hast cast all my sins behind me. For they that are in the grave, or Hades, the same word is translated Hades later in this verse, for they that are in the grave shall not praise thee, neither shall the dead bless thee, neither shall they that are in Hades hope thy mercy. The living shall bless thee, as I also do. For from this day shall I beget children, who shall declare my thy righteousness. I'm sorry. Who shall declare thy righteousness. O God of my salvation, I will not cease blessing thee with the psaltery all the days of my life before the house of God. The prayer of Hezekiah is a prayer recognizing and thanking Yahweh God as the giver of life, as well as the savior of men. So is the prayer of Manasseh which follows. But even with that, notice that when Hezekiah thought he may die, he lamented and said, I shall no more see at all the salvation of Israel on the earth, which is also a central theme throughout this book of Odes. Now, Odes 12 is the prayer of Manasseh. It is found in the King James Apocrypha, the Septuagint Apocrypha, but it is not found in Scripture. It is mentioned in 2 Chronicles, in verses, chapter 33, verses 11 through 13, but it is not recorded there. O Lord, Almighty God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of their righteous seed, who has made heaven and earth with all the ornament thereof, who has bound the sea by the word of thy commandment, who has shut up the deep and sealed it by the terrible and glorious name, by thy terrible and glorious name, whom all men fear and tremble before thy power, for the majesty of thy glory cannot be borne, and thine angry threatening towards sinners is importable. It cannot be carried. But thy merciful promise is unmeasurable and unsearchable. For thou art the Most High Lord, of great compassion, long-suffering, very merciful, and repentest of the evils of men. Oh, Thou, O Lord, according to thy great goodness, has promised repentance and forgiveness to them that have sinned against thee, and of thine infinite mercies hast thou repented unto sinners that they may be saved. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the just, 
has not appointed repentance to the just, as to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance unto me that am a sinner. (coughs) For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. My transgressions, O Lord, are multiplied. My transgressions are multiplied, and I am not worthy to behold and see the height of heaven for the multitude of my iniquities. I am bound down with many iron bands that I cannot lift up my head, neither have any release. For I have provoked thy wrath and done evil before thee. I did not thy will, neither kept I thy commandments. I have set up abominations and have multiplied offenses. Now therefore I bow the knee of my heart beseeching thee of grace. (coughs) I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I acknowledge my iniquities. Wherefore I humbly beseech thee, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me, and destroy me not with mine iniquities. Be not angry with me forever, by reserving evil for me, neither condemn me to the lower parts of the earth. For thou art the God, even the God of them that repent, and in me thou shalt Thou wilt show all thy goodness, for thou wilt save me that am unworthy, according to thy great mercy. Therefore I will praise thee forever, all the days of my life. For all the powers of the heavens do praise thee, and thine glory is forever and ever. Amen. Now, Manasseh was taken off into captivity by the Babylonians and later restored which is why this prayer is important so even the portions of scripture chosen by our liturgist which glorify God are connected to the subject of national or racial salvation for the children of Israel and the Christian liturgist who sang of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and of their righteous seed could not have imagined that he was singing about Jews. The sin, repentance, and forgiveness promised to the children of Israel is also the theme here, as it was in the earlier odes. And in this Old Testament context, that can only apply to the genetic children of Israel, just as in Luke chapter 1, it can only apply to the genetic children of Israel. The passage cited in the following ode, is often mistranslated by common Bible versions, which in our universalist paradigm simply cannot understand it. However, we are convinced that our Alexandrian liturgist must have understood it as we do. And this is Odes 13. It is the prayer of Simeon. It is the pericope of Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Now release your servant, Master, in peace according to your word, because mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the consolation of Israel. 
as it is recorded in Luke 2.25. I'm sorry, Luke 2, verse 25. So, in the temple, holding the Christ child, he announced the fulfillment of those words. Commenting on this verse, in June of 2012, as we presented Luke chapter 2 here, we said that the phrase, Phos ice apocalypsin ethnon, here is a light for the revelation of the nations. That's a perfectly literal translation. And it may have been rendered a light for a revelation of the nations. The word apocalypsis is a noun, meaning an uncovering or a revelation, according to Liddell and Scott. And it is the same word which supplies the alternate name for the book of Revelation in our Bible, which is the Apocalypse. The King James Version translation, a light to lighten the Gentiles, uses the noun apocalypsis as a verb, which is both impossible and inexcusable. Paul defines the faith which Abraham had as being the belief in the promise of Yahweh that his offspring would become many nations in Romans chapter 4. Here we see that it is the light of the gospel which would make those nations manifest. And certainly it did once the people of Europe became known collectively as Christendom. This wonderful truth of Christian Israel, the Christian Israel fulfillment of scripture, is therefore hidden in the mistranslations of the King James Version and most other Bibles. And I will challenge any Bible scholar on the language, the Greek language of this passage, because they are all wrong unless they agree with me. That sounds awfully arrogant, but it's simply the truth. The liturgist must have understood that the children of Israel had been spread abroad from ancient times, and that as they accepted the gospel of Christ, they fulfilled this prophecy. Nearly every one of these odes has been based around the same theme, and this is this one is nearly conclusive to that theme, that the children of Israel were punished for their sins, but now they had redemption in Christ, and that they would become manifest simply upon accepting that redemption and repenting of their sins. This liturgist only chose three passages from the New Testament for his liturgy, with the exception of one line in the very next path, in the very next ode, and in, in in what is actually the last of the odes. I'm sorry, except for that one line, he only chose three passages, and they were all from Luke, and they were all related to national redemption and salvation, and the keeping of the promises to the fathers, while most of the Old Testament odes have to do with the sin, punishment, scattering, oppression, and promise of redemption, which were all promised to the same children of Israel. This is 
a Christian identity liturgy. There is no doubt about it. This is Ode 14. It's called the Hymn of the Early Morning. Now, it is often noted, even if you look up the Book of Odes on Wikipedia, that this ode contains, quote-unquote, some lines from Luke 2.14, Psalm 144.2, and Psalm 118.12. Now, various sources say that, not only Wikipedia. But except for the short passage in Luke, Luke 2.14, the sources that claim that, they're wrong. The two passages from the Psalms which are usually cited are not a source for this ode, although the ode has similarities with other passages in the Psalms. Now, don't get me wrong. I wish that these two passages were a source for this ode, since in Psalm 144.2, David sings, My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. And then in Psalm 118, from verses 10 through 12, David prays that all nations compassed about me but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compassed about me like bees. I'm sorry. They compassed about me. Yeah, they compassed about me. But in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. And then the last verse is given as, by many sources, as, as being the source for this ode. And it says, They compassed about me like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For the name of Yahweh, I would destroy them. That would indeed have been the perfect ending to this Christian identity liturgy. However, I do not find the words in the Greek versions. So I do not know why the sources made these claims. That this ode is based on, in part, Psalm 144.2 and Psalm 118.12. I can't find why these claims are made. Furthermore, I could not even find an acceptable English translation of the entire ode, except for the first half. So what I'm about to read, what follows, is sort of a hybrid translation, partly copied from others and partly my own, although I have checked all of it against the Greek and I can vouch for the veracity of the translation. The first line only comes from Luke 2.14, Honor to Yahweh in heights, and peace upon the earth among approved men. And that's the way we translate it in the Christogenian New Testament. I believe that most modern translations also screw that up, because they don't understand the difference between approved men and men who cannot be approved. Then the ode continues, which is called Hymn of the Early Morning. We praise you, we bless you, we worship you, we glorify you. It's reminiscent of the song of the three young men. We give thanks to you for your great glory. 
Lord, King, Heavenly God, Father Almighty, Lord, the Only Begotten Son, Jesus Christ, all these titles being applied to the same God, and Holy Spirit, so much for the Trinity, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You who take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You who sit at the right hand of the Father, and have mercy on us. For you only are holy, only you are Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Each day we bless you, and we praise your name forever, and to the ages of ages. Christ, being God, exists for the glory of God the Father. There's not a problem there. <coughs> and the part that I had to um, partially translate myself, Make us worthy, O Lord, even this day, to keep us without sin. Blessed are you, and praiseworthy, O Lord God of our fathers. Even your name has been honored for the ages. Truly, or Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I'm not stuck. It's actually repeated three times. Lord, you became a refuge for us for generation and generation. The word became being in the past and a refuge for us referring to people in the present and generation and generation thereby necessarily extending into the past the liturgist must have understood that he was indeed an Israelite and that Christianity was for him I said O Lord have mercy on me Heal my soul, because I sinned against you. Lord, I flee to you. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God, because from you is a well of life. In your light I shall see light. Extend your mercy to those having to come, having come to know you. The Alexandrian liturgists certainly didn't believe that the laws of Yahweh God were disposed of in Christ. Of course, Christ himself demands that Christians keep his commandments. Once again, notice the words. You became a refuge for us for generation and generation, which claims that the laws of God were a refuge on a national or racial scale. Of course, that also would only be applicable to the children of Israel because only they ever had his law. Practically every scripture included here laments the punishment of Israel, the scattering of Israel, the oppression of Israel due to national sin, and the ultimate promises of the reconciliation of Yahweh God and Israel in the fulfillment of the promises which were made to the fathers. These particular passages could not have been selected randomly. These passages must have been purposely chosen to convey this message, since that is the message which they consistently convey. 
This being a liturgy, this must be the message that the liturgist, the liturgist, the person making the liturgy, wanted to pass on to his Christian readers as doctrine. The liturgist must have been aware of the relationship between Yahweh God and the genetic children of Israel as it is expressed in both testaments. Both testaments. Imagine that. This is the true small c Catholic doctrine. As the original Greek meaning of the word Catholic is according to the whole, meaning that the Catholic doctrine was based on an understanding of both Old and New Testaments, and not merely one or the other, as opposed to the Jews, who would deny the New Testament, or the Marcionites, who would deny the Old Testament. So in every way, the Book of Oaths is a Christian identity liturgy. And we see that in at least one ancient codex, as late as the 5th century A.D., the true meaning of Scripture was not yet obscured by the lies of the Jews. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.